Good to see you. Would you please uh, keep the Trinity hymnal nearby? You'll need it later in our service here this evening. And then you want to grab a Bible and turn to John's Gospel. If you're using one of the Bibles in the Purack, you could find this evening's passage on page 903. We're going to look at John chapter 17 and then verses 20 through 21 is where we will launch. Chad Van Dixorn uh, points out that there is a Christian instinct to state the truth openly. It's the cults that hide things. You don't find what they believe until you get in and you find out, oh no, this is bad, this is dangerous. But Christian disciples share what they have learned. And this is part of the heritage and blessing of the creeds of the church through the centuries. It's a big task tonight, cover thousands of years of church history and particularly a certain period. Uh, here's going to be my approach. So this is something of just headings of an outline so you could kind of track. We'll begin in John 17 here in a moment. And we're going to look at the ministry of Christ and its relation to creeds. Then a big section in the middle tonight will be the development function and importance of creeds. And then as you see there in the bulletin, the final section will be the blessing of creeds through the centuries. I'm very encouraged by the, the turnout tonight. There's a couple of reasons. I don't know the reason why everyone's here. It could be that this is your New Year's resolution to come to evening church, and we're glad you're here. It could be that you are a, a history buff, and the title intrigued you. It could be uh, you wanted to see how does a pastor cover this in one 30 to 40 to 50 minute sermon. But I trust that uh, we are aligned, that we do want to see Christ tonight, and that we want to feed on him. And that's why we return, to worship him and to have our souls ministered to by our Savior. And if you're not a Christian, I hope that you would learn something of Christ and be drawn to him this evening. So to that end, before we read God's word, I'd invite you to pray with me this evening. Our Lord and our God, Heavenly Father, we thank you that you sent your Son for us and for our salvation. And we thank you that that message that Christ delivered, the arrival of the kingdom of God and repentance and faith for the forgiveness of sins has endured. So we ask that it would continue on in this generation as it's been preserved in Scripture and as it has been protected through the ages. So help us tonight to see the glory of the Savior and to receive from Him, from Your Word. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing to You, my Rock and my Redeemer. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Let us hear God's Word from John chapter 17, verse 20 and 21. Jesus speaking, I do not ask for these only, 
but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you. That they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Amen. And that ends this reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he write its eternal truth on all our hearts. This evening we begin with the ministry of Christ and its relation to the creeds. This prayer, this is a prayer here in John chapter 17. It concludes Jesus' teaching on his last night with his disciples prior to going to the cross. It's a section in John's gospel where there's been a series of teaching and then we come to this prayer, this high priestly prayer. And in verses 6 through 26 of John 17, we get a glimpse of Jesus' intercession. That's his prayer on behalf of believers. First his disciples, and then here in verse 20 and 21, for others. So, just in our passage tonight, in 20 and 21, who does he pray for? Those who will believe in him through Jesus' apostolic messengers. That's who this two verses he's praying for. Those who would believe in Jesus through the witness and message of the apostles. What does he pray for? Well, he prays that they will be united, that they will have unity, that there will be oneness, that there will be agreement, just as he and the Father are united, just as he and the Father are in agreement. And why does he pray? Well, we see that at the end of verse 21. So that even more would believe the witness of those who first believed. So it's, he's praying for those who would believe through the apostles. And the end of that prayer is that those who believe through them would then, through their transformation, through their being brought into the body of believers that others outside would see it, hear the message, and believe too. Now, in Romans 8 and other places, we learn that Jesus is constantly praying for you. If you're a Christian, constantly praying for you. And here in John chapter 17, we get a glimpse of what those prayers might sound like. So I encourage you to go back and, and read verses 6 to 26. But here in particular, have you ever thought about this? That on the night in which Jesus was betrayed, if you are trusting in him today, he was praying for you. Here is a record of a moment in space, time, and history where you knew exactly what Jesus was praying for you. And part of that prayer is that he's praying for unity. Now, to be clear, he's not praying for a big organization that would have outward unity. It's a spiritual unity. We say that because it's the unity shared between the Father and the Son. And if we look back in John 17, we see that this unity, it's a, 
It's a unity of mission. So if we're in the communion of saints to be united in Christ, then we are to be united on mission for him, just as the Father and the Son were united. So verse 4 of chapter 17, Jesus says, I glorified you, speaking of the Father on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. He's speaking as if it's already done because he's so committed to going to the cross because that is the work that he was ordained to do. It was the Father's ordination and the Son willingly accepted the mission and the call. They were united in mission. And so, for us as believers, Jesus is praying that we would be united in mission. There's a unity of love we see in this chapter 17 of John's Gospel. Verse 24, Jesus says, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Part of the the message that Jesus gave to his disciples is that he was the one loved by the Father and as the Father loved him, he so loved them and that they were to have that unity of love but it's also a unity of message. It's a unity of message that he is praying for his disciples. And so in John 17, verse 6, Jesus speaking to the Father, but talking about those first disciples and apostles. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Verse 8 For I've given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you have sent me. There was a transmission of the message from the Father to the Son to the disciples. Everyone's united in it. And so the unity then he's praying for, for those who would believe through the first disciples and those apostolic messengers, is that they too would be united in the message. Did you notice that in in verse 20? I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me, believe on me, place their trust in Christ. It's that great New Testament preposition of being in Christ, that they would believe into the Savior. This is the prayer, and that those who believe in, that they would be united They would be united around truth, that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one can come to the Father except through him. And so it's important to point out that and remind you that biblical unity is never at the expense of truth. Never at the expense of truth. What Jesus started and what he handed off, it was to remain united around the same truth that he taught his disciples, that they taught their early church, and that their early church then passed on to generations. There might be those today who would say it would be easier to unify if you weren't so black and white about certain things. Well, this is where the development, the function, and the importance of creeds come in. It helps us get a picture of, in one way, in the book of Providence, how God sustained 
a unity of message for Christians throughout the centuries. It also helps us be clear about what should we be black and white about. What are the non-negotiables? What defines someone as being in the big, broad Christian tradition? But it's important to state that it's never unity at the expense of truth. D.A. Carson said it this way, unity is not achieved by hunting enthusiastically for the lowest common theological denominator, but by common adherence to the apostolic gospel. R.C. Sproul put it this way, anyone who is a Christian today in a state of grace It is because of the fidelity of the apostolic community and broadcasting the teaching of Jesus and bringing it to the world so that it has been faithfully passed down to our generation. Now, as we're thinking about the development of creeds here, we got to admit that when we look back over the course of church history, this hasn't been smooth sailing, and that was from the very beginning If you think about the things that the Apostle Paul had to correct within the Corinthian church, morally and doctrinally, clarifying from the very beginning, this being unified in the truth, it took work, it took effort, it took the help of the Spirit, it took faithful believers. There were a couple obvious challenges. There was a time in the history of the the New Testament church in which If you had a question for Peter, there was a possibility that you could track him down and say, could you clarify this for me? But the first obvious challenge to unity of the truth was the death of the apostles. But we see the apostle Paul is in 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus, he's very concerned with setting up normative leadership for the church, giving a structure, recognizing the the challenge that was coming to the next generation once the generation of the apostles were no longer walking on this earth. And part of that requirement for those leaders is that they would hold fast to the apostolic message, that they would hold fast to the form of sound words and sound doctrine. And so he instructs in the pastoral letters. And related is the second obvious challenge, there's the doctrinal challenge. How would the teaching be passed to the next generation. There are the scriptures that are the collection of special revelation and then there is the apostolic interpretation of sound doctrine. How is that passed on? Well, what we see in the early church here in the development of creeds is that they began employing something called the rule of faith. And it wasn't something that the church invented out of just curiosity or the sake of innovation, it was because of threats. It actually began with threats from within. It was those who claimed to be Christians, but then started speaking about Christ in a way that wasn't in accord with what Christ taught about himself and then what the apostles wrote about Christ and that faithful interpretation. And so there was the Docetus with some of the early threats, which was part of a bigger group called Gnosticism. What you need to know about them is that they they started claiming that Christ only appeared to have human flesh. 
And so the early church then started identifying a rule of faith. And that rule of faith would outline the life of Christ, including his coming, his incarnation, his, his work, his real death, his real resurrection. And we see this popping up in early church letters. So in the second century, it's the epistle of Ignatius to Trellians. And I'm not going to read it for you, except for the line that says, if anyone teaches you something else, stop your ears. That's what Ignatius instructions were. That was the rule of faith. He laid out, this is what the apostles taught us. This is what the scriptures teach. If anyone teaches anything else, fingers in the ears. Then also another example is Tertullian on the prescription of heretics. In that rule of faith, he outlines creation, Christ, the Holy Spirit, the coming kingdom, the judgment. And then we see in church history, the rule of faith leads to what was then called the Roman Creed, which is a little more defined, articulate, starting to get narrower in, in consistency and language. And this is used in baptism. It was used as a, a guard for the threat of docetism, and it was used in baptism as a guard against unbelievers infiltrating the church. Because before you could be baptized as a sign of initiation and rite, the sacrament that you are part of the believing community, you had to profess the Roman creed. And this creedal structure is in place, once again, early in the third century. And historically, we can trace it from the rule of faith to the Roman creed to the Apostles' Creed. Not much more to say on there, uh, except for we should probably pause, say, what is a creed? What is a creed? Creed comes from the Latin credo. It means, I believe. So the person coming forward for baptism had to say, I believe. Historian J.D. Kelly put it this way, this, Defining a creed, it's a fixed formula summarizing the essential articles of the Christian religion, enjoying the sanction of ecclesiastical church authority. Or, more simply put, it's the basic beliefs of the church that have been handed down from the earliest times. That's what a creed is. Now, as it was pointed out this morning, we see that there is creedal principles and creedal statements within the Bible. So as Pastor Jason brought to our attention this morning, both from Philippians chapter 2 and Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy chapter 6, the Shema, Philippians chapter 2, that great Christ hymn. We also see different forms of it potentially in places like the beginning of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, where Paul begins with something, I'm going to remind you of something of first importance. And then he clearly states the gospel. Or, quite simply, the statement in Scripture that Jesus is Lord would have had a creedal statement saying, this is my belief. Particularly in the first century, as you come forward for baptism, to say that Jesus is Lord meant that Caesar was not. And you were pledging your allegiance to Christ above all else. And then, Jesus himself, in Matthew 28, in the Great Commission, he gives us in the baptismal formula to be baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, something that is creedal in principle. So how were the creeds used in the church? These, these statements of what 
Christians believe that's being passed on. It's been pointed out by Justin Holcomb that today, most of us, we were reared in and we were soaked in an individualist culture. So our idea is we pick and choose what religion we like, and then sometimes we pick and choose different parts of different religions, or even within the big Christian tradition, we pick different parts of different denominations, and then we try to make something maybe entirely new with the goal of trying to make it personal to us. But for the early Christians, the creeds, they were used by the body. This wasn't just for individuals, it was for public professions of faith. It was used by groups. It wasn't just even that a summary of what everyone in the group believed, but it was a promise to one another that we are going to hold to this. And we're going to keep this teaching. And so, they were used in baptism, making a public profession. As time passed, they were used to teach new converts. As the gospel spreads, not the entire world is literate. And many learn orally. And having these summations of basic Christian teaching is used for teaching purposes for everyone. We could say it's not just for the intellectual, but it was for the mechanic of the ancient world. Everyone, the creed served to instruct them in the foundational teachings of the church. Then, eventually, creeds began making their ways into the liturgy, that is, the the order of worship of the church, because they were statements about God and who he is, his glory and his greatness. So Justin Holcomb put it this way, far from being a device of the ivory tower, creeds were that ordinary, that way that the ordinary tradesmen and farmers could learn about and pledge their lives to the God of the Bible. It was what Jesus prayed for, that there would be those who would believe through the apostles and that there would be those who would believe through them and there would be those who believe through them and that they would be unified in the truth that the Father gave him to give to his disciples. Now, what's the difference between a creed and a confession? And this is, won't, won't be too much time here, but it's quite simply, a confession gives us more detail. A Christian confession often defines a particular group's belief on secondary issues, such as infant baptism, the end times, predestination, the Lord's Supper, and maybe the order of salvation. And so confessions represent that there are Christians who do earnestly study the scriptures and come to different interpretations and convictions. And therefore, it is appropriate that they would identify themselves by these confessions. But the creeds are such a big picture that many confessions can fit within the creeds. So if you can imagine the creeds, and we'll identify a couple here in just a moment, big circle This is the big boundary of the Christian tradition. And then within there, there's many other circles of confessions. And those in those confessions must look at one another and say, you are a Christian. You are a Christian. 
We may disagree on a lot, but you are too a Christian. So creeds can serve many denominations, while confessions oftentimes serve one group. Creeds can serve Lutherans, Baptists, Anglicans, Presbyterians, and they are meant to serve and bless the church in a wide circulation. Now, where did the creeds come from? Now, many of the creeds were decided at large church meetings called councils. Councils brought together leaders from all over the known world to hammer out issues and to respond to heretical teaching. And these were issues that were too difficult for one man in one place and one pastor to hammer out on his own. And if you give a charitable reading to the course of church history, what you often find in what provokes these councils, the heretics were sincere men who got a hold of something and made something that might have been minor a major, or they got a hold of something and it cast a, 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 a paradigm over everything else for them. And so, one man, one bishop, one pastor, one presbyter, it was too much for them to handle alone. There are seven ecumenical councils that every Christian tradition recognizes today. That includes Eastern Orthodox, Roman Catholic, and Protestants. The first council, I would say you could go back and review in Acts chapter 15. But it does lay out what would be the intent of calling these councils. There's an issue related to doctrine and the practice of the church, and it's not to be decided by one pastor in one church, and so the elders and the apostles come together in Acts 15, and then they send out instructions to the church. So Acts 15 kind of looks like a council, kind of looks like a presbytery meeting. Um, it's, it's, it's something that really sets a model for how we deal with these things. These councils, there were Christians from all over the world. It wasn't just the most intelligent Christians or the best preachers or certain activists. It was a cross-section of informed Christian leaders. And it was intentional that there would be many voices and perspectives that would come to weigh in in order that they might maintain what was the apostolic message, and to ensure that all the viewpoints in discussion were fairly represented. And the councils at their best sought to study the scripture and relied upon the Holy Spirit to guide their decisions. Now, once you dig into this in church history, you find out, man, the way the sausage was made was really a mess a lot of times. And you'd rather not know these things. There's a lot of politics involved, and there's a lot of, of, of power grabs and authority, but in God's providence, and I might even suggest an answer to Jesus' prayer in John 17, these seven councils have served the ages to maintain what does it mean to be Christian in the sense of how do Christians define God? How do Christians understand the person of Christ? I'll list them for you here. The first council of Nicaea in 325. The second of these seven councils, the first 
Constantinople, Constantinople in 381. The third, the first council of Ephesus in 431. Then the fourth one in Chalcedon, 451. The fifth one, this is where it really starts to get confusing. The second, Constantinople, 553. Then there's a third Constantinople, that being the sixth council in 680 to 681, and then a second Nicaea in 781. Now, Protestants lean most heavily into those, those first four, the Council of Chalcedon being the last one. Um, it was actually the, the third council where they said at Ephesus, no more councils. We're done with councils. No more need. And then issues arose related to the person of Christ. And then they came together at Chalcedon and they, they gave a definition about the person of Christ. They didn't produce a creed. They produced a definition. So Protestants, we look at one major creed that was the product largely of these councils. And the later councils, the 5th and 6th and 7th, are still wrestling with the Nicene Creed and the Chalcedon definition. So this evening, we're not going to look at all the councils. I want us to take time to consider the Nicene Creed and the Chalcedon definition. Nicene Creed, it's rooted in two of these councils, the 325 and the 381, the first Nicaea and the first Constantinople. And so, if you were taking an ordination exam, you would have to identify it as the Niceno-Constantinople Creed. Thankfully, we just refer to it as the Nicene Creed for common use. There in the first council is 325 AD. The controversy is about a presbyter named Arius. You may have heard him referenced before. This Presbyterian is, uh, presbyter Arius is in conflict with Alexander the bishop of Alexandria. And so this is why the council is called. What is the issue? Arius was teaching, in, in, in shorthand, that Jesus was a created being. He was the first and greatest created being, but he was a created being. And so there's issues related to the Trinity, and specifically the nature of Jesus and his relationship to the Father. So maybe you've heard these words before, the controversy gets pointed around the words homoousius and homoousius. So it's Constantine, he calls this council to address Arius' teaching. Arius taught that there was a time when Christ was not. He believed that Christ was created before everything else and that God used him to create every, everything else, but Christ was still a creature. The council declared, leaning into Scripture, that Christ was begotten, not made. But this is important to understand in development and the, the way of applying scriptural teaching. There's a question that still lingers. Because sometimes you and I can use a word in a different way. And so begotten, the Arians could wink at each other and say, yeah, we can affirm that. And so they had to find a word that represented biblical truth, but it itself wasn't in the Bible. And of course, we do this, and this is part of what, what came out of the creeds, with something like the doctrine of the Trinity. Trinity not being in the Bible, but representing the clear teaching of Scripture. And here, that's where the homoousii and the homoousius come into play. What, what do these words mean? Homo means same substance, being of the same substance of the Father. Homoi means a similar essence. 
And this is where they were able to press those who were following Arius' teaching throughout these different councils, because it wasn't just one time that this needed to be addressed. Can you affirm that Jesus is of the same essence and substance of the Father? And the Arians could not. Now you see the, the importance of, of these matters, right? There, there's an eternal importance. It makes a big difference if Christ is just the first act of God's creation, doesn't it? Is salvation God condescending to creatures or is it a creature reaching up to God? What distinguishes Christianity from every other religion in the world is that it is God who comes down to us, not us who find our way to God. The question of can we truly worship Christ is at stake. Because ultimately he does not deserve the same honor and glory and recognition of the Father deserves if he is a created being. And then the question of Jesus claims to reveal the Father, if he's created being, how can he reveal an eternal being? Very important questions. I invite you now, this is going to take some time, but we should do it. Grab the Trinity hymnal in hand. Stay seated. What I'd like us to do is that at the close here, in just a moment, we would use the Nicene Creed to profess our faith as Christians, but I don't want to ask you to do that, that blindly. So let us take a moment and read it together. And if I ask you to stand in what you believe, if you can affirm this later in the service, I would encourage you to do so. I'll read it for us. You follow along. It's in the Trinity Hymnal on page 846. 846. One thing to note in the third paragraph in the Nicene Creed we're about to hear, this version of the Nicene Creed is not affirmed by Eastern Orthodox uh, because there is an alteration that came at the Council of Toledo which clarifies that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son, and that's where the Eastern Orthodox would disagree, both with Roman Catholics and Protestants. They believe that the Holy Spirit only proceeds from the Father. Listen, 846 in the Trinity Hymnal, we believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of his Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered, was buried, and the third day he rose again according to the scriptures and ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He shall come again with glory to judge both the living and the dead whose kingdom shall have no end. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshiped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. And we believe in one holy 
Catholic and Apostolic Church. We acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins, and we look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. By Holy Catholic, we mean lowercase c, the universal church. By one baptism, we mean with water in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. So keep the Trinity hymnal nearby for later. The Nicene Creed. Then the Council of Chalcedon produced not a creed, but a definition. It was called by Leo the Great, and there were several controversies that were brewing here in Nicene Creed, you see that there were issues related to the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, particularly then there continues to be issues related to how do we understand the person of the Son. There was a man who taught, Nestorius, he taught that Christ had two natures, which you may say, I've heard that before, but he taught it in such a way that he stressed it that it was two persons, a divine person and a human person. That's a an oversimplification, but it's basically where his, his teaching led. And so therefore, Nestorius couldn't affirm that Jesus came through Mary and that Mary was the bearer of God. Theotokos, the mother of God. She was only the mother of his human nature. Now we understand his human nature was from Mary, but he is, as we'll see, one person. And so it is correct to say that he is the mother of God. In response to Nestorius, there was a Eutyches who was so committed to responding, and this is often how it happens, that instead of keeping the two natures in one person clear, he fuses the human and the divine together. That's again an oversimplification, but that's part of the, the issue that's at hand. And so the, in Chalcedon and 451, they, they work on this, and they come to what I keep referencing, that Christ has two natures but one person. But the important language is that they are united without conversion, composition, or confusion. Um, that's how uh, it's handed down through the ages. Conversion, his divinity was not lost in his humanity. His humanity was not lost in his divinity. Composition. The incarnation did not result in a new creature that was neither God nor man. Confusion. The human nature and the divine nature keep their integrity. And this is what the, the Chalcedon definition creedily does for us. It makes it very clear that to be a Christian, to be a Christian, you must, you must affirm that Christ is fully God. And you must affirm that Christ is fully man. But in doing so, you can't mix these two natures together. And you can't do so that one nature overshadows the other that in such a way that the other disappears. And it's not a union that is brought together in which it produces a hybrid. But the natures are not separated. And it's a great example of how historic creeds guard against gospel distortions. Because if you get this wrong, what's at stake? The mediator. He must be God and man. He must represent man to God and God to man. That is what was required of our salvation. But it's one person. So here, using these 
important examples, we see how the creeds provide a foundation built on the scriptures, but they also provide a fence for the church. And it could be a really big fence of Trinitarian and Christology, but it's a fence to say, on the other side of this fence, you are saying and affirming and believing something that is not Christian. Now, to the blessings. I've hinted at it to a point, but let's be clear. Here are some of the blessings. It does define the broader Christian family. I'll never forget sitting in a, in a class and the, my professor in seminary was, was talking about issues related to God's sovereignty and his complete and total providence. And I had been reading about uh, an, an error in this view, and the, the view is open theism. And I thought I knew so much about it, and so I was ready to just blast this particular theologian and author because of his views and how it didn't line up with what we believe in the Reformed tradition about God's sovereignty and providence. And I was embarrassed because the professor pushed back and said, you're talking about him like he's not a Christian. And at that point, at the Reformed seminary, I, there were some balloons that popped, and I said, well, yeah, he's not a Calvinist. He's not Reformed. He doesn't, and he said, does he believe in the Trinity? Does he believe in the incarnation? Does he believe in the, the, the Son is eternally begotten, two natures, one person, that there's no salvation outside of Christ, that Christ died for sins and rose again and is returning as judge? And I was like, yeah? And he's like, well, he is a Christian. Now, he's a Christian in great error. And many things, I would not recommend his books, his teaching, his preaching. If he's at a conference, don't go. I'm not even going to say his name so you don't Google him later. You need to be careful when we throw around the word heretic. If someone can affirm the Nicene Creed and the Chalcedon definition, be very careful with labeling them a heretic. They might get some very vital and important things wrong. And you, in love for them and for the sake of unity and the truth, should speak up. But be careful calling someone a heretic. Now, it may be concerning. You may say, it seems like this simple gospel becomes more complicated and complex through the ages. But this is the blessing of the creeds, but it helps us understand that it's the same salvation that was offered in the first century that is offered today and preserved. So though doctrine develops and we can come to a better understanding of it, it's always been Jesus. There's a great testimony. We were doing new member interviews uh, for Good Shepherd before they particularized. And one woman was sharing her testimony of faith in Christ and she, she went to a very, very progressive church on the west side of the state. And if I said it, everyone, in, a lot of people in here would know it. And then she moved away and went to a church that opened up the Bible and read it. But what she said is that when I was at that progressive church on the west side of Michigan, all I knew was that God sent Jesus to save me and I believed that, and I loved him. And then later, she got in a church, and she was taught sound doctrine. And she was mad at that church, to be certain. 
that they weren't teaching the Bible and they weren't teaching what Christians had historically believed, but the Lord saved her there. Doctrine and its development is for the health and for the building of the church. It's for the strengthening of the mission of the church. But we do not need to be worried. It is always the same Savior and He has not changed. And we are not saved according to our understanding of the depths of the mystery of God. We're saved by placing our trust in Christ as the only mediator. A third blessing is that you and I, when we go and we look at the creeds, and then as we look at, we can even say the same with confessions and catechisms, and this will probably be reiterated over and over, is that you and I have the privilege to read the Bible with Christians from the ages. We get to read the Bible, not isolated by ourselves, not just with our own growth group, and not just within our, our local church, our denomination, our, our era, but E-R-A, uh, this time, but the, in the ages. It represents the way that Christians had wrestled with these things for many, many years and centuries. What a great opportunity to learn from brothers and sisters in Christ that one day we'll get to meet in heaven Read the Bible with Christians from the ages. And then, the last blessing, these creeds represent a public representation of Christianity, a public decoration. It's not an individualistic faith. But to be certain, it represents a personal faith. Personal faith. Credo, I believe the Nicene Creed. We believe Every time you turn to a creed, it reminds you. Before getting into the technicalities about the hypostatic union, it reminds you of your personal need to place your trust in Jesus as the Savior. And that's a great blessing to us. So turn to 846, there in the Trinity hymnal on page. And if you would like to, to, this evening, stand and profess your faith in Christ using this historic creed, I invite you to do so. I'll start it by saying, Christian, what do you believe? And then we'll begin reading together. Christian, what do you believe? We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of his Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried 
and the third day he rose again according to the scriptures and ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father and he shall come again with glory to judge both the living and the dead whose kingdom shall have no end. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshiped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets, and we believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins, and we look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. Dear believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, on the night in which Jesus was betrayed, he prayed that you would believe in him. Let us ask the Lord's blessing on the preaching of his word. Heavenly Father, we thank you that this testimony to the gospel has been preserved through the ages and through the messiness of church history and politics that there is a clear record of what the scriptures have revealed and taught, the sound doctrine, sound words of you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and particularly of the Savior who for us and for our salvation became man, fully God and fully man. Lord, may our consideration of this drive us to study the scriptures along with brothers and sisters through the ages that we might feed on Christ, know him, be conformed to his image, and live for his glory. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.